Hi, this is a production of Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, where our mission is to bring Christ's hope, healing, and wholeness to our community and to our world. Our service times are 9 and 11 each Sunday morning. Find out more at www.communitycovenant.net. Hey, how many of you had the opportunity of attending our mission uh, dinner and auction on Friday night? Wow, what a great event. And I'll tell you, it's just a reminder uh, of how generous uh, you are here at Community Covenant Church. Uh, That auction and dinner goes to help support uh, our mission of bringing Christ's hope, healing, and wholeness to our community, to our state, to our nation, and beyond. Uh, and uh, the funds that are generated there make a huge difference in our capacity uh, to send, to go, to support uh, the work of Christ around the world. And uh, I am happy to say, I think that at last number, it was somewhere around $23,000 and counting, okay, which is great. So it's a great event. Yeah. Yeah, in that neighborhood, okay? Every time I hear it, it keeps getting larger, which is what I like to hear. Okay, so that's a, that is a good, good thing. I want to begin this morning uh, by sharing with you uh, an article I read in Psychology Today. And uh, in this article, the author was talking about something we all know, that uh, the people or individuals that we spend time with have influence on our lives. In fact, some would say uh, you become like those um, that you're in community with. Uh, He went on to say that it's important for all of us uh, to identify people uh, that we can emulate, uh, not only imitate, but that really that we can become like and how important that is, role models are. Uh, in our lives. And so let me share with you just a little bit. He identifies five people that he says are, are worth emulating. And he identifies the reason why for each. And each has a distinct characteristic or quality that would make them worthy, worthy of being uh, emulated. Um, the first is Nelson Mandela. He identifies Nelson, uh, Nelson Mandela, uh, and he says it's because of his courage. And he goes on to say uh, that the very best leaders are courageous. Courage or fortitude allows a leader to take calculated risk and, pertwist, uh, and persist towards a goal despite obstacles and setbacks. And it talks about his 27 years in prison, but he persisted in his cause to abolish apartheid in South Africa. He was eventually elected president. He says that courage is about taking necessary steps for a just cause. Courage is about taking necessary steps uh, for a just cause. I was watching a World War II documentary about the 101st Airborne, uh, the, the Screaming Eagles, as they dropped into the beaches of Normandy, uh, and it said, courage is being afraid, but going anyway. And that's one of the paratroopers identified courage that way. The second person the author said was worthy was a, a, a woman named Jane 
Adams. Now, many of you may know her. Perhaps you don't. Let me introduce you to her. She was a tireless advocate for the poor and disenfranchised in the late 19th and 20th century in America. She noted the plight of the poor and the homeless, uh, and she later took up the cause of women's rights and the plight of exploited workers. Uh, She was a great leader, but the quality he's known for is that she possessed great empathy for those who were marginalized or broken. And the author says empathy becomes a motivated fact, a motivating factor uh, to work towards the betterment uh, of others. The third person the author identifies is Abraham Lincoln. Okay, that's not a surprise, is it? Uh, most of us can can see why he might be on this list. Um, the author identifies him as having great social skill. Social skill. He was a master of persuasion and winning people over. Uh, he had a complex blending of emotional and social intelligence uh, that allowed him to be an effective leader. He was able to build good relationships, not only with friends, but as adversaries. Doris Kearns Goodwin wrote a book about that called A Team of Rivals. You, many of you maybe have read that. How Lincoln was, when he was picking his cabinet members, He specifically chose people who had been uh, his opposition to serve on his cabinet. And he won them over in the course of time. And they became uh, his supporters and followers. The fourth person, Gandhi. And the quality there is humility. He was a leader of one of the largest independent movements in modern history. And uh, it says that he lived and ate modestly and displayed great humility and uh, his his humility uh, was his source of power came from that that humility the meekness of the man in the biblical sense that he possessed so Gandhi was the fourth person the quality or characteristic humility now the fifth person on the list surprised me but really doesn't surprise me but I had to say okay the author identified John Wooden, okay? Uh, John Wooden, the uh, late former basketball coach of the UCLA Bruins. And his quality is that he was a transformational leader. In that, in his leadership, he literally transformed the lives of the people that he led and the institution that he was a part of. And in John Wooden's case, literally the whole sport of college basketball. And ultimately, professional basketball uh, because of his influence on players that went on to have outstanding uh, pro careers. But it says that transformational leaders are positive and they are moral role models. Remember John Wooden's pyramid of success? Before the players ever got on the court, he taught them, right, the pyramid of success. And it had to do with integrity and quality and characteristic of living in life. Uh, that would make them better people and, as a result, better basketball players. Um, He taught performance in a way that players were able to exceed expectation and the transformation of those players into leaders in other areas and endeavors of life. Um, Coach Wooden was a man of faith, a man of faith, And uh, he inculcated that faith and that virtue uh, 
in the lives of his basketball players. So, in this article in Psychology Today, five people, Nelson Mandela, Jane Adams, Gandhi, John Wooden, and Abraham Lincoln, uh, all worthy of our emulation. Okay? But as we have, last Wednesday, started the Lenten season, and as we begin to look towards Easter Sunday in April, uh, our focus as Christ followers becomes that of Jesus Christ. And we're specifically walking with him on his journey uh, to the cross and then to the empty tomb. And as we think about a person that is worthy of emulation, worthy of imitation, uh, the person that I would like to suggest that each of us would have at the top of the list would be Jesus, Jesus Christ himself. In fact, uh, God's desire through the work of God the Holy Spirit in our lives is that we would literally be transformed and then conformed to the image of his son. That through the, the work of sanctification, the work through which um, the Holy Spirit is working in our lives, right? Um, transforming and changing us, conforming us to the image of his son, we begin um, to take on the characteristics and the qualities that Jesus himself exhibited during his life and time on earth. Uh, he is our, our teacher. We're his disciples, his followers. And I'd like to suggest... <clears throat> that the rate and the pace of transformation in your life, uh, spiritual transformation in your life, is directly related to the time that you spend walking with Jesus. And so during the weeks between now and Easter, uh, we're going to be looking at a brand new sermon series called Live Like Jesus. Live Like Jesus. Uh, because... That's God's desire for us, that we be transformed, that we be conformed uh, to the image of his son. Uh, I remember uh, Dr. Richard Mao. He was a professor of ethics, former president of Fuller Seminary. When I had him in class, he would always end the class. He'd say, now remember this, right? Remember this, he'd say. It does not yet appear what we shall be. But when we see him, we shall see him as he is, and we will be made like him. Okay? That's the good news. And that's the ongoing work of the Spirit moving us to that point in time when we are, and the work of sanctification is done, and we are fully conformed to the image of our Savior. So, as each of the five people that were identified had a quality or a characteristic that the author in Psychology a Day said was worthy, made them worthy of emulation. We want to look at qualities and characteristics of Jesus' life. And as we see them, we want to be intentional about following him and growing in those things. So I want to start with a quote. It comes from Dr. Henry Blackaby. Remember his uh, study called Experiencing God? Do you remember what the premise of that whole study was? That you, you look to see where God is at work and then you join him in that. Look to see where God's at work and join him in it. And this is what Dr. Blackaby says. He says, The life of Jesus provides the model for our prayer lives. 
God is seeking to mold us into the image of his son. If we are to act like Christ, our prayer lives must be conformed to his. If we're to act like Christ, our prayer lives must be conformed uh, to his. Uh, Prayer uh, isn't part of the ministry. It is the ministry. All that we do as followers of Jesus uh, must be done on a foundation of, of prayer. Prayer, prevailing prayer, pervasive prayer, um, that is a value that we hold in this church. When you walk through the doors of the church, and if you look up towards um, the window there in in the lobby, and you look up, you'll see hope, healing, and wholeness. That identifies what we want to be about, bringing Christ's hope, healing, and wholeness to our community, to our world, to people who call this their church home. But then if you look to the right, you'll see a prayer wall. How do we bring hope, healing, and wholeness? Okay, well, our mission board says just love. Well, you can't love a person more than when you're praying for them. Okay? And you can be an agent of hope, healing, and wholeness through prayer. That's why there's a prayer wall. Uh, that's why you can post a prayer request and people can intercede and they, and they put... They put those little dot stickers on there to let you know that that they're praying for you. And there are prayers on that board that go back three years. And they're left there so people can see and know that pervasive and prevailing prayer is a value of this church. In the corner is the prayer corner. Wave back there. Rebecca and Sarah, there you go. They are there to pray with you and for you any time during the service. Right now, if God's leading you to be prayed for, you want to pray for something, they are there. Please get up and please go. We have healing prayer in our church and, 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 and prayer that, that helps identify what some issues are and, and really intense prayer to help release people and free them from things that are, that are holding them into bondage and keeping them from really fully uh, being all that God wants them to be. Uh, Heather Smith, you're there. Raise your hand. Heather is um, our, our prayer pastor in the church. She oversees prayer ministries. She'd love to tell you more about how you can be involved. Okay, Kim Canamore, sitting right next to her, has been involved for years in intercessory prayer. I'm telling you, prayer is ministry. All ministry is built on the foundation of prayer. Now, you expect me to say that. I know you do, because I'm the pastor, right? (laughs) But it's very clear in the Scripture and in the life and ministry of Jesus and his disciples and those who would take the gospel to the world, the importance of prayer, the importance of prayer, now, I don't have to tell you the amount of prayer that has been answered in this church. Okay? Cindy Camilli, you were in a safari in Africa, and you had an aneurysm, and we didn't know if we were going to lose you. But I know this congregation and people around the world began to pray, and guess what? Here you are today. It's a miracle. And we celebrate that. We thank God for that. 
A couple of years ago, Julie Halverson went into brain surgery to remove a malignant tumor, which they had told them ahead of time that that, uh, she would probably have 18 months to live. And they got in, and what they thought was a tumor had become just an infection in her brain. And uh, Julie and her husband, Kevin, they're raising their children and being a part of this church. What a testimony. Last year on May 6th, my wife, Lori, called away. I was called away from, from church here. My wife's in the emergency room. She has an aneurysm. Uh, she's in very bad shape. They're life-flighting her to Seattle. Okay? Frankly, on that airplane, I didn't know if I was going to be um, taking her from Seattle home to Los Angeles to be buried or whether we'd come back together to Anchorage, Alaska. Okay? I didn't know. But God interceded because of your prayers. And that's just some examples. That, that there's prayers being answered in our lives in personal ways, relational ways, all the time. Prayers that we aren't even aware of. But what I'm trying to tell you is prayer changes things. Okay? And as C.S. Lewis would say, most of all, prayer changes us. Because when we pray, we're never closer, I believe, to the heart of God and the heart of Jesus than when we are praying and he is using us as an instrument of prayer. Now, what motivates you to pray? What, what is the thing that prompts you? Your prayer. That's the question I want to ask you. You can go on to your app and respond to that. Okay? I'll read some of the answers at the end of the message. But what is it that motivates you to pray? In Luke 11.1, 1, it says, One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. Now, What follows is the Lord's Prayer. We said that. And the Lord taught them that prayer. That's a kingdom prayer. And then after that, you see a couple of parables. The parable of the persistent friend and the parable of the good father. Jesus does a teaching on prayer and the importance of prayer. But what I'm going to focus on here is, why is it that the disciples asked Jesus, Jesus, teach us to pray? Why? Well, the answer, I think, is fairly clear as we read the scriptures. That, that Jesus' life was punctuated with prayer. Everything he did, he began and ended it in prayer. His literal ministry and the end of what? His life before his resurrection began and ended with prayer and with prayers. And so the disciples were watching Jesus, and they saw his prayer life. Now, you want to learn how to pray? Here's how you learn how to pray. Because some of us, that's foreign to us, at least free or open praying. Maybe we grew up in a more liturgical sense or church where prayers were written, like the Lord's Prayer, or confessions or other things. And and so we learned those by memory, and we recited those. And that certainly is one aspect of prayer. But for me, that was what I knew. And so 
when I came into a, a Christian community and culture where there was more free prayer, where people just pray like they were talking openly to somebody in front of them, right? That was intimidating to me. Can anyone relate to that? And so how did I learn to pray? Well, I learned to pray by just praying and being around people who did. And they modeled that for me. And I was able to learn that from them. Uh, in fact, I tell the story often many, many years ago when I was working with Prison Fellowship, I had a fundraising event, was following up on all the people who attended. And I went to meet with this very, very prominent businessman in Sacramento named Don Morrissey. Uh, and I sat across the table from Don and Don says, I know why you're here. Right? He says, uh, you'd like me to write a check. He goes, but young man, right? I was 33. He was almost 70 at the time. He goes, but young man, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus. I am going to offer to meet with you every Tuesday morning at 6 a.m. for prayer. Oh, right? Oh, yeah, okay, just write the check. I'm being honest, okay? But I began to meet with Don Morrissey every Tuesday morning at 6 a.m. for prayer. And for over 20 years, he became a prayer mentor to me. And I watched and I observed and I watched his relationship with God and how he spoke with the Lord. Wow. And that literally transformed my life. And I learned about prayer, and I learned to pray from a prayer mentor. That's what's going on here with the disciples. Because in Jesus' time, it was very common for rabbis to write prayers. He did. He gave them the Lord's Prayer. But to teach disciples how to pray. A rabbi would teach their students prayer and teach them how to pray. And they'd observe Jesus' prayer life. They said, Jesus, we want to learn to pray like you pray. Okay, now Jesus modeled a lifestyle of prayer. Now check this out. It's like Don Morrissey, Matthew or Mark one thirty five. Verily early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Now, if you read on in that passage, you can tell that it had come just right after a very intense time of ministry. The disciples, Peter, they go looking for them. They say, hey, there are a lot of people. They want you to continue the ministry. Jesus says, no, we've got to move on to other places because it is my calling. It's my mission to preach the good news of the kingdom. And so he went out to other villages and places and preached and taught and healed people. So that prayer, that early morning prayer, was a prayer that helped center him and focused him and prepared him from his day so he could be about his father's work. Now, if Jesus needed that to start his day, how about us? He modeled that. And so as we go through now some of these things that Jesus did, we want to look at them. And what a wonderful thing to do during Lent, if you would read, do a survey of the Gospels of Jesus' prayer life. When he prayed, how he prayed the prayers he prayed, that'd be a wonderful Lenten study if you want to do that. If you want to begin, go to Luke's Gospel. It's often called the Gospel of Prayer because in Luke's Gospel, we see perhaps more vividly than in any of the other Gospels, uh, Jesus' prayer life. 
And so that would be a place to start. But let me look here and, and let's try to, as we read these verses, let's try to think about how we can apply them to our own lives, how Jesus can be our role model for prayer. Okay? Luke 6, 12 through 13. On those days, Jesus went out to the mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When the morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he also designated apostles. So let me tell you what's going on here. That he prayed immediately after opposition and before a big decision. Because just prior to going off to the mountain and spending the night to pray, he had healed somebody and had been confronted by the Pharisees. Great opposition. They had challenged him. Okay? He'd gone through a real difficult time. And so following that difficult time, he goes off to pray. But while he is praying, he's preparing to do what? The selection and the appointment of his disciples. And so we learn from Jesus that after difficult times or during difficulties and before important decisions, that, that God calls us to prayer. Mark six forty five through 46. Immediately... Uh, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him uh, to Bethsaida. While he dismissed the crowd, after leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Now what's going on here? The prayer is bookended between the feeding of the 5,000, right? And then Jesus walking on water and appearing to his disciples in the storm. And so here, after and before very strenuous, very dynamic work, in this case, miracles, Jesus is doing what? He's fortifying himself with prayer. Luke 18.1 Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. That is called persistent, prevailing prayer. And he goes on to tell them the parable of the persistent widow. Luke 18, 1 and follows. Jesus prayed with persistence. He prevailed in prayer. And he wants us to do the same. He wants us to pray and not give up. Not give up. Matthew 26, 36 through 39. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them there, sit there a while while I go over and pray. He took Peter and two of the sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground, and he prayed, My Father, if possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus prayed under intense stress in trial, in difficulty that you and I can only begin to imagine, and he prayed to do God's will. Prayer anchors us in the will of God. It helps us to, to continue and to be focused in doing God's will, even in the most difficult 
of times. When the waves and the wind come, prayer is the anchor, right, that keeps us from going adrift. And in Luke 22, 44, during the days of his life on earth, he offered, excuse me, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat with like drops of blood falling to the ground. And then we read Hebrews 5, 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petition with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Jesus prayed with passion. He prayed with intensity. He prayed with focus. And he directed his prayers to the one who could make a difference. And I have to confess something to you. So often, man, when times are hard, I, wanna, I just want to complain about how hard times are. Or if someone does something to me that hurts me or offends me, I want to go tell somebody else about it. But how about if I stop doing that and just talk to God about it? Because God is the one who can change things. God, who's the one that can change that person, change my circumstances, change me. And so we do a lot more time talking to God, focusing on him. Luke 23, 34. As Jesus, suffering and dying for our sins, looked upon those who spat upon him, who cursed him, who mocked him, And what does he say? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Forgive them. Prayers of forgiveness. And then finally, Hebrews 7.25. I love this. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he is always able and always ready to intercede for them. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, ascends to the right hand of God the Father, and there he sits and makes constant intercession for you and for me. So that no one, according to Romans 34, 35, no one can bring charge or accusation against us. Because if Jesus, who is judge, does not, then who can? Because he is our great intercessor. It's Christ's death, his resurrected, his exalted position, and his constant intercession on our behalf, right? That makes us secure in the salvation that he has given to us. Well, the question here is, as we look at Jesus' life and as we look at how he modeled prayer for his disciples, so much so that they said, Lord, teach us to pray, Are we going to follow in the same way? Are we going to say, Jesus, we want to look at your life. And as we just look at a survey of your life in the Gospels, as we look at a couple of verses in the book of Hebrews, and we want to pray like you, Jesus. We want to emulate your prayer life. And the good news is this, that every single one of us has these kinds of circumstances in our life. Every single one of us has an opportunity to follow and to model after Jesus in our prayer life. And if we do that, if we do that, God works 
powerfully in us and through us to change things, to change people, to change circumstances, to change and transform lives, because prayer changes things. It changes things. It's the atomic bomb, all right, of spiritual warfare. How do I know? Because sometimes we'd rather do anything but pray. Why? I know the devil doesn't want us to, right? And so, if you want to learn more, if you you want to grow in that, um, talk to Pastor Heather. She'll talk with you. She'll let you know. She'll let you know about prayer classes we're having here at the church. All right. The question is, what prompts you to pray? Here are some of your responses. Okay, you ready? Life. (laughs) Yeah. Amen. Family and guidance. A desire to thank God. Feelings of discomfort about something. When I feel resistance towards God. Thirst. Struggles. Thankfulness. My kids. (laughs) Earthquakes. Faith in God's plan for me. When I'm either missing or overwhelmed by the presence of God. Crisis. Oppression. The prompting of the Spirit. Joy. Thankfulness. Need. Most often it is crisis. The feeling that it'll take something supernatural to change the situation. Did I tell you that prayer is supernatural? Yeah, it's good stuff. Anxiety. Desire for fellowship with God. Jesus' love poured out to others where they need prayer or blessing. Oh, amen. Gratitude, encouragement, and fear. Prayers for guidance and wisdom and opportunities for either myself or another person to grow in our relationship with Christ arises. Relationship, thanksgiving, petition. It is the central avenue God uses to transform me and the world in which we live. Boy, that's a good place to stop, isn't it? I want to read a quote for you from Richard Foster. In fact, Richard Foster has a, a book about prayer. And this is what he says. To pray is to change. All who have walked with God have viewed prayer as the main business of their lives. Of all spiritual disciplines, prayer is the most central because it ushers us into perpetual communion with God. Amen. Let's live like Jesus. Let's live a life of prayer.